Welcome to the Parsha Etc. with Rabbi Francis Nataf. Tonight we're going to look at the Parsha, but we're also going to get ready for Pesach, the holiday that's coming up next week. Um, the good thing is that the Parsha has a tie-in. It speaks about the fact that chametz, the dreaded food that we're all going to try to avoid next week, is uh, actually prohibited in the temple or at least on the altar, throughout the year. And in my article, my Dvar Torah in the Jewish Press this week, I point out that it's interesting that the temple has certain things in which the service, the activity, let's say, is more stringent than outside, and there are situations in which it is less stringent. And I in the article, explore that theme, and I want to explore it in a different context with you this evening. As you probably know, many people tend to be more stringent on Pesach, on Passover. In fact, I would say pretty much anyone uh, who is observant of Jewish law on any level tends to be more observant, so much so that uh, we're aware of people who throughout the year do not keep kosher at all, and yet when it comes to Passover, we'll uh, bring out matzah, we'll uh, some, in some cases uh, be observant of kashrut, of, of the laws of, of keeping kosher, specifically during those uh, seven or eight days if you're living outside of Israel. Um, so it, the, the idea of being machmir, of chumrah, extends widely throughout uh, any um, I should say any, but almost all observant Jews on all levels of the spectrum. In any case, you might wonder, not everybody knows why it is that we tend to be more stringent on Pesach. Uh, The bottom line is really two reasons. The main reason is the severity of the punishment of eating chametz is more severe than the punishment for eating other forbidden foods, what's called karet, which is excision, being cut off, uh, spiritually, uh, meaning one's soul, uh, being cut off, being destroyed after one uh, passes away. So that's obviously something we want to avoid, and therefore we uh, are more stringent. Certain things built into the halachan, other things uh, that have crept in as various minhagim, as various customs. Another reason... Uh, less important, but also discussed uh, broadly in Jewish sources, is the fact that on Pesach, the prohibition of chametz is not nullified if it's mixed in with other foods as are other prohibited foodstuffs during the rest of the year. So there's a reason to be more careful about the mixture that can occur because it's a uh, uh, one can simply say, well, it's only a small drop, it doesn't matter. And in the case of chametz, it does matter. Um, so that's an additional reason besides the severity of the punishment. Now, there are, as I said, cust- uh, uh, laws that are built around the stringency, such as uh, stopping the eating of chametz uh, early in the day before Pesach. The uh, Torah does not prohibit it till later in the day, uh, whereas we stop eating chametz already on the fourth hour of the day. Check your local halachic calendar. 
but in any case, that's a law. That's a law that's built into the Jewish legal system based on the fear of eating chametz. So this is a chumrah that's institutionalized into being a law. But there are other chumrot that various communities take on and individuals take on that are only on the level of custom, be it a personal custom, a family custom, or a communal custom. Uh, I'm just going to mention a couple of these customs just to show the downside. I'm going to speak about the upside of chumrah later on. But right, right now I just want to point out that many chumrot that are personal, that are not uh, communal and are not uh, in, in, uh, integrated into halakha, uh, have a downside. I mean, one can say that even those that are integrated in the halakha have a downside. That may well be true. Um, all things have two sides to them. But in, on that level, there really is no choice for someone who is loyal to, uh, to Jewish law. The decision has been made that the um, advantages outweigh the disadvantages, at least for the, the people as a whole, and therefore we're all obliged to keep those stringencies that have been integrated into law. But two that have not, two customs that have not been integrated into law, which come with a price, one, one of them is not to eat matzah, uh, during the rest of Pesach, besides the Seder night. Seder night is when one is obligated, one has a very specific commandment um, to eat matzah. Um, however, some people, out of the fear of eating matzah that was not properly baked, uh, do not eat matzah at all during the rest of the week in order to avoid this issue. Uh, another related custom based on a similar fear of, of coming into contact with chametz, is not eating out, not only not eating at restaurants, but not eating at friends, um, it, out of concern that the people that are preparing the food may not be as stringent as they are, and therefore um, one is careful not to, to eat out. So both these customs come with a cost, uh, which uh, I'm not saying not to keep the custom, but just to point out that there is a cost in, in both of these things, as there is, as I said before, in just about any activity that we do. Uh, when we're strict about one thing, it comes as at the cost of being lenient about something else. In this case, for example, Simchat Yom Tov, the enjoyment of Yom Tov, which is also a commandment, or the eating of matzah beyond the first uh, night or first two nights of Pesach is still a what's called a mitzvah kiumit, that one um, performs a commandment of eating matzah even when one is not obligated to do so beyond uh, the notion of eating meals, of eating proper meals with birkat amazon, with grace after meals, etc. So there comes a cost with these customs, and we're not saying here that, uh, that the cost is too great and therefore no one should keep such a custom. Simply pointing out that, as in most cases, these uh, humrot, these stringencies, come at a price. And therefore, that should be what a person who takes on a humrah should 
investigate and make a cost-benefit analysis on a spiritual level, which ultimately this is all about. Now, I want to give you an interesting story about my own teacher and a humrah that he passed on to his students. Um, I being present when he passed it on to my cohort. Um, specifically, we were learning the laws, the Gemara actually, of Eruvin, of, um, of the Eruv. And we learned through the whole, uh, I shouldn't say the whole, it's a, it's a, it's a very long and broad discussion. Um, we didn't go through the whole tractate, but we went through a, a decent portion in great depth with uh, the various commentaries and as it's discussed in Halakha. And at the end of the discussion, our teacher of uh, Aaron Lichtenstein said to us that given the nature of the prohibition, again, a strict prohibition, the prohibition of, of Malachan Shabbat, which like um, which like chametz is a, uh, something that comes with a more severe punishment. And given that many uh, opinions are more stringent about when an eruv can be built, uh, specifically in the, in, the, in the question of building an eruv in a large city, like Jerusalem, for example, or meaning even a medium-sized city like Jerusalem, but certainly uh, bigger cities, um, that many Rishonim, many of the early commentaries, are stringent about the possibility of, of uh, creating such a thing, of making an Eruv. And therefore, he suggested that since there is big disagreement among the Rishonim, and we're not dealing with a vast majority uh, people often think that it's just the Rambam and Maimonides who rules more stringently, but in fact, many Rishonim uh, go along with the Rambam that uh, you do not need 600,000 people to create a Rishad Arabim. Um, obviously, there's, there's many, many more factors involved, but that's one of the more famous things that people normally associate with the Rambam. It's, uh, in fact, not only the Rambam, but many other Rishonim as well. In any case, Rivlinstein pointed out that there is a great disagreement about the permissibility of, a, of an Eruv in a city, and given the stringence, given the, the uh, punishment at stake, that it's worthwhile to be stringent. Those were his words. And uh, many of us were, in fact, moved to take this on uh, when he said that. Now, there's a follow-up story, which is quite interesting. I, um, many years later, was spending Shabbat with one of his students uh, from a different cohort, but who was uh, also aware of Rav Lichtenstein's position. And he was a community rabbi, and um, I noticed that he used the city Eruv in a large, in a large city. And I asked him about that, and what he said to me was as follows, which I uh, appreciated very much. He said that normally he would not use it for that reason, being a student of Lichtenstein, he would uh, prefer to be more stringent himself. However, he was aware that if he did so, uh, many of his congregants would do so as well. Now, while he and his family were willing to pay the price uh, 
uh, not just willing, but able to pay the price on the spiritual level, meaning that they understood the value of Shabbat um, on a very profound level, and the the nature of halachan again on a on a deeper level, and therefore that that prepared them to uh, forego the facility of being able to carry things on Shabbat. Most importantly, when it comes to young families, what we're talking about is uh, mobility to go out of the home for one more than one spouse at a time, for the family to be able to go elsewhere as a family, whether it be to the synagogue, whether it be to friends, whether it be to the park. So this is, you know, a fairly serious price to pay in terms of, again, a, a value that is part of the halachic system as well, the value of Oneg Shabbat, um, besides all the various uh, family dynamics of Shalom Bayit and, and so on and so forth. So here too, there's a price to pay, and the calculation has to be made individually. So it's interesting that this rabbi understood that his calculation had to take into account not only himself nor even just his family, but the whole community as well. Did he want to set a precedent where many people would follow him who weren't ready and did, would not realize that they're not ready to take this on and would pay too high a price that would be a spiritual price? So this is, I think, what's important to understand about Humrah. Humrah is actually something that we should all strive to take on in certain situations, meaning where there is good reason to uh, be concerned about our performance of the halakha, to want to perform it in, it in as good a way as possible, which should always be our goal, um, then it's entirely appropriate to seek to do so. And that may mean to go beyond what is simply required of us on a minimal level. On the other hand, one has to always confront what's the other side? What am I giving up, not only in terms of my creature comforts, but what am I giving up spiritually by taking on this practice? This always has to be taken into consideration, has to be con taken into consideration also during Pesach, during and, uh, and, and uh, before, and right now we're before Pesach, and uh, it's important as we clean to understand that much of the cleaning that we do may not be necessary, and if it's not necessary, um, it may, uh, again, have uh, an enhancement of the mitzvah, both of Bir Chametz, of a Chachanala Yom Tov, a preparation for Yom Tov, preparation for Shabbat as well. So all of that may be very good, but one has to ask, is it worth the price in terms of fatigue, in terms of uh, create, making ourselves neurotic, and so on and so forth. So that's it for this evening for Humrah. I just want to close out the session, the episode, by uh, thanking one of the listeners out there from the previous podcast. And it's good to know that someone 
uh, is listening out there. I had mentioned that uh, I had lost the book, The Voice of Saren, hoping that I could uh, recover the copy that has been taken and, and never returned from me many, many years ago, uh, when we were still living, I think, in the United States. Um, that copy did not resurface, but uh, one of the listeners was kind enough to send me a new copy, and uh, it's good to get some sort of partnership, even when it's not necessarily in terms of tangible rewards. Um, however, if we're speaking about participation, there are many other ways to participate, including various methods of sponsorship. Please look into the um, anchor uh, logo for this episode, and you should be able to find various information, some information about uh, sponsorship. And if you can't, please be in touch and we'll be able to help you with that. So that's it for now. And uh, we won't be in touch. Wanted to have our next podcast till after Pesach. So I'll take the opportunity to wish all the listeners out there Chag Kasher V'Sameach.